Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News, Newcastle Chronicle, and Yorkshire Live. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective, you're in the right place. I'm Dan O'Donoghue, and on this week's episode, Northern Agenda editor Rob Parsons speaks to Richard Jeffrey, a senior business figure in Greater Manchester, about how firms in the North are coping with the challenges and opportunities of the pandemic, net zero, the digital transformation and levelling up. Actually, a lot of businesses have been able to survive and some really thrive during the period. So, But there has been differences, uh, without a shadow of a doubt. And you know, the overall picture right now is confidence is high and is higher than we've seen for quite some time. Well, first, I'm lucky enough to be joined by former North West Durham MP Laura Pidcock, who sensationally quit Labour's governing body, the National Executive Committee, last week. Laura, welcome. Perhaps if we could start with that, could you just fill our listeners in on why you resigned from the NEC? Yeah, of course. I think um, it might be um, something that people don't know necessarily goes on in a political party, but just like schools or businesses would have governing bodies, the Labour Party too has a governing body called the National Executive Committee. And if you'll just indulge me for like, I'll try and do it in about 30 seconds, the NEC is is made up of affiliates, so trade unions and um, and other groups and it is also made up of the constituency section so I was like directly elected by the members of the Labour Party Um, and then it's the chair of the NEC the leader and deputy leader and then members of staff kind of come and report on on pieces of work so it really is about the functional practical how the political organization is is governed essentially and I did it um with backing from a lot of the kind of grassroots members organizations um and it was obviously after a significant defeat at the general election uh, where of course I lost in Northwest Durham, and it was like a really painful period trying to come to terms with, you know, losing that chance of like a historic socialist Labour government, and what is this new period? So I did it with an open heart, wanted to best protect members and the policies that they'd all fought for. Um, and campaigned and won a seat on the NEC. I've served for quite a while. It's a two-year term. I nearly did all of that. Um, But yeah, unfortunately, last week, resigned from the NEC. And it wasn't on a whim. It wasn't just kind of like storming out. It wasn't something that I did lightly because I take very seriously the trust that was placed in me by the Labour members to represent their interests. And they obviously kind of do that along factional lines in the NEC elections where, you know, people will be um, 
kind of promoting the type of politics that they want to see in the Labour Party. And I did that to the best of my ability for a long time. And I just want to describe some of the things that happen behind the scenes, because obviously it's all in your own time. I work full time. I've got a little boy. I'm the national secretary of a wonderful organisation called the People's Assembly, which we might talk about a bit more later. But um, it is a lot of work. And obviously, I don't mind doing a lot of work and um, working really, really hard on that endeavour. Um, but what I very cr- quickly found was the direction that the leader of the Labour Party and the other people that kind of sit on there who hold positions of power in the party were taking us on a trajectory that I was really uncomfortable with. Um, One which kind of um, is about kind of tightening up the rules, shifting who has power. And it is so long winded. It's about kind of constitutional changes to the way the Labour Party operates. And again, you know, it's fine to put your arguments in a room and to understand that you're going to lose those arguments sometimes. And you you have to kind of just deal with that, don't you, in any walk of life and you get on with it. And of course, um, we did get on with it. But then, like, really personally, I was, like, looking out my window, looking at the state of things um, that were happening in the country, looking at the several sets of crises that are taking place. So not only in that period living through a global pandemic, also over a decade now of austerity and, of course, this cost of living crisis, which is so acute and so serious, and seeing a kind of upsurge in industrial militancy. And I just thought, what am I doing? what am I doing Um, kind of sitting in this position fundamentally disagreeing with the the constitutional so the kind of rule changes and the direction changes that the party are going on and these decisions are being made in my name why don't I put my energy where it is much better served um working to organize around the serious difficulties that working class people are experiencing right now I mean, you had some pretty harsh words. I think you touched on some of them there for the current leadership, saying the party under Sakia had a bit of a lack of vision. I just wonder, just responding to what you've just said there, is that lack of vision more tied into kind of a broader sense of what's going on in the country? Or were you more concerned about what they're doing at a kind of party level to change the rules or, you know, change change things internally? Which was the, the main concern for you there? I got into politics for the very modest ambition of changing the world, like most people do. And um, and you kind of, you know in your heart of hearts as a, a working class person that like things can be different, that it doesn't have to be like this. And in order to cultivate the scale of change that we need, you need confidence and you need to be surrounded by people who also believe in that change and want the fundamental change. And I was I was an activist before I ever became an MP. I was like an anti-racism campaigner, anti-austerity campaigner. I got into parliament I was very serious about saying I wanted to be a kind of dedicated socialist MP. Um, and, you know, we we kind of know the complexities of what happened in that period of parliament. But we were advocating fundamental change. We were advocating change that would have made uh, a meaningful difference to millions of people's lives. And one of kind of the favourite aspects of that was about deepening rapidly the capacity to have democratic workplaces much more power of working people um which you know 
we desperately need right now. And so that's where my heart is. And then you get into a position where you're seeing rollbacks on on some of those commitments, a kind of hesitancy, a reluctance, a a defiance of saying, you know, things about nationalisation and goodness me, you know, the announcements that um, we're hearing about the cost of living crisis and in particular the energy crisis need radical solutions I mean I don't even think they're radical they're very sensible to say okay the market is completely failing and we'll take it in a public ownership and to see that and just see a a kind of a real reluctance that that does really worry me um in in terms of policy because I don't think the state that we're in you can kind of tink around the edges with this system I think many people listening to what you've said will kind of point to the polls and say, you know, Sakir is doing very well and he's much further ahead than Boris Johnson. Do you think that's anything to do with Sakir himself and the policies that he's putting forward? Or do you think that's more to do with kind of the current state this government are in, really? I mean, would, would Jeremy Corbyn or let's say another kind of uh, left-leaning MP in Parliament like Rebecca Long-Bailey, would they be doing just as well right now as Sakir up against this Prime Minister, do you think? Well, the, the Prime Minister couldn't be worse, could he? I mean, the Prime Minister is... We knew about his character. And actually, I think it's very lenient to just talk about his character, isn't it? Because the character is the least of all worries. The ideology that kind of unpin, underpins who Boris Johnson is and all of the people, let's not forget, who are members of parliament who put him in that position have run in this country. You just think, goodness me, what what have we become as a, a as a, a a system that he is in charge um and of course i said at the last time um in in to the last question that of course it was a, a different situation two years ago but boris johnson and this government have handled this crisis the pandemic and the cost of living crisis absolutely disastrously people know that and it isn't just about the parties that they had that are being investigated by the police it is about and the lateness to respond you know the cutting of universal credit at a pivotal time where people are in poverty the continued um entrenchment of austerity which makes our communities look totally different the um acceleration of the private sector in the nhs you know all of this a cumulative effect of all of this is just like overwhelming isn't it look at the picture that's being created for for the northeast but for working class people everywhere so yes the conclusion is Boris Johnson and the Tory party are failing and there seems to be an internal crisis in the Tory party that looks like you know Boris Johnson served his purpose he looked like this kind of insurgent anti-establishment figure, even though he's deeply embedded in, in the establishment. We can move on now and they'll put somebody else in, I'm sure, um, as soon as whatever they need him to finish it is, is done. And and the Labour Party will have to respond to that. So I think, and I, you know, I have said it publicly, that the Labour Party haven't been a vociferous enough opposition. And by that, I mean... Like it's been an emergency situation for two years, hasn't it? People going into the workplace, people really, really worried about their exposure to the virus. People, um, you know, if we just think about what people have had to endure and yet those people who have taken us through the crisis still have a pay freeze, still can't pay the bills, haven't to access food banks, you know, having their access to healthcare, you know, further frustrated by all of the complications that are going on in there, that it's deeply ideological about what the Tories are doing to the NHS. All of that story, all of those real things that are happening to people need a strong, robust, 
um, in my view, aggressive opposition to say, not only is this all wrong, but this is how fundamentally different things could be. Uh, let's see who the Tories put up next and what that, that does to the polls. But, um, you know, I, and I said before, I'm very, very interested in this government losing power and kind of forcing um, the conditions for, for them to do so. The things you described there, do you think that's a matter of kind of style that maybe Sakir just needs to toughen up a bit and come across a bit stronger? Or do you think fundamentally there needs to be another person at that dispatch box when whenever Boris does go? I think that um, the Labour Party needs to show that, and I've, you know, I've said this for, for years, that they are firmly on the side of working class people we know in the northeast that the roots of the the sorry the the kind of the distance between the labor party and working class people has been over not just a general election cycle but over decades hasn't it you can see that in the kind of vote in what is now being described as 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 red wall areas and that is so complex because i think it is about what we have had to endure as these post-industrial communities, communities where we know that centralised decisions have been about taking us away from actually producing things as regions towards uh, kind of service industries and um, as important as, as those service industries are, are they attracting investment? infrastructure investment are they creating you know thousands of long-term jobs that also have significant training and skills development alongside them that also respond to the kind of green industrial and you know the need for industry to be green and contribute to a sustainable planet and that's a really complex picture isn't it and I think in order to connect again with these communities that have experienced this kind of long-term deliberate, in my view, neglect, um, there needs to be a proper plan um, around around our communities. And you know, I'd like to see Keir Starmer um, come into County Durham again to talk about and and kind of show that he understands. Um, just exactly what working class people are going through. And I kind of don't buy into this north-south divide in one sense because I, I'm also acutely aware that people are um, experiencing really, really difficult conditions like in London and um, other other parts of, of the south. But we know, don't we, that there, of course, is disproportionate um, infrastructure investment, transport infrastructure investment between uh, the north and the south. That's indisputable. I used to get a bus for like pound fifty in London of work um, and there used to be five or six buses a minute, whereas in County Durham, that's just unheard of, isn't it? Um, so understanding the kind of difference in investment, understanding really that the roots of that disconnect between the Labour Party and working class people is not just about one man, it's not just about one kind of set of policies, but about really connecting with what working class people are experiencing here and being able to commit to the fundamental change that we need. And I'll just say one last thing on that. I know that what I've said there, like fundamental change, like what does that actually mean? And I think a really good leader tells a story about what that means um, and isn't scared to lean into some of the unknown. 
So what is fundamental change? What does democratising the workplace mean? For so many people that have lived through Thatcher and beyond, that becomes a distant memory, doesn't it? So it's about really kind of the building blocks of what that could mean. And and that takes time and it takes repetition. You mentioned kind of the red wall there. I, I just wondered how it made you feel to, I mean, you know, levelling up paper came out this week and people observed that, you know, a fair bit of language and certainly the way things, some things were phrased. I suppose you could say they were nicked from Jeremy Corbyn circa 2016 and, and beyond. And, and also, you know, seeing some of, you know, these Northeastern Tory MPs describing themselves, you know, saying the Tories are now the, the party of the worker. How, how does that kind of, you know, language and uh, make, make you feel really? Well, if we're talking about feelings, it, it makes me feel absolutely gutted in one sense, because we know it's like surface level, it's superficial, uh, where's the substance, where are the fruits that have been born from, you know, this sudden commitment to working people, we know they're not there. And like, it's so patronising as well. And like, it doesn't last, does it? Because I've I've heard in some of the levelling up stuff, some of the language about redistribution of power and wealth. Now, you'd hear that in a socialist meeting. <laughs> Um, you would, you know, that's our, our fundamental aim to redistribute um, power and wealth and for working class people to have control over their own lives and to own the things that they produce and all that kind of stuff. Um, and the reason we know it is absolute rubbish is because you would have to, if you commit to redistribution of power and wealth, you would have to reorientate what government is about and you would also have to uh, commit to things like I mentioned before, like fundamental democracy in the workplace, which of course means greater powers to trade unions, to get in there and to organise and to represent and to have the power to take industrial action in a much less frustrated and bureaucratic way. And by the way, I have to say, I think the trade union movement are respondent to this crisis brilliantly and are navigating the very, very seriously um, restrictive, some of the most restrictive trade union legislation that we have in the Western world. They are doing that. But, you know, it's a bit cheeky, isn't it, to talk about fundamental shift in power and wealth um, and take away the £20 uplift on universal credit, which was an acknowledgement of how stripped bare the social security system is and how difficult people were finding it. Uh, and all of the statistics about poverty, about, and you know, this is upsetting, but about food bank usage, about how hungry people are, about what nutritional levels people have got, about life expectancy. You honestly could shout, you, you, you could kind of get a grip of these people and say, can you not see what's happening in our own communities? There's food bank queues. There's people who um, are going, you know, children that are going to school hungry. People cannot afford to put the blinking heating on. They can't afford to put the lights on. But yeah, we're levelling up and redistributing power and wealth. It's 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 cheeky. Well, it's more than that. It's 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 painful to those people experiencing the the conditions of poverty in their system. 
Do you think you'll be uh, making that case on the doorsteps of the next election? Will you be uh, standing again in North West Durham, perhaps? Oh, I think I've got a bit of thinking to do before <laughs> I make any kind of commitment there. I tell you what, though, um, can I just give a shout out to the People's Assembly? We are um, demonstrating in Manchester on the 12th of February about the cost of living crisis and on the 12th of March about the cost of living crisis, saying that this isn't our crisis, so working class people should not have to I'm certainly going to be doing everything I can to get the Tories out. So as we enter February, hopes are high that the North and the country as a whole has seen off the worst of the Omicron surge and can look forward to life returning to something approaching normal in the months to come. But after a turbulent two years that has seen three lockdowns and a host of support schemes to keep struggling firms afloat, what's the outlook for the region's businesses for the rest of 2022 and further afield? To find out, let's speak to Richard Jeffrey, the founder and former leader of the GC Business Growth Hub, which is based in Manchester and in recent years has helped create more than 13,000 jobs and safeguarded a further 12,000, while also raising millions in funding for small and medium-sized businesses. Richard is now National Director of GC Business and has a world of experience of helping firms in Greater Manchester thrive in what has been quite an uncertain business climate. So Richard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me on, Rob. Really looking forward to the discussion today. Absolutely. So just as a a starter question, obviously, as I said, it's been a, a very tough and turbulent two years. What's been the general picture for the businesses you've worked with during the pandemic and has it sort of been different in different sectors different parts of the country first thing to say from my perspective is i've been really inspired by the clients that we've worked with it's been an incredibly tough period but what what i've just seen is there just unbelievable resilience ability to to adapt and shift and pivot and 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 i think what we've seen overall is that the the government funding that's gone in, the support that's gone in, it, it's worked. And by putting cash into the system, by keeping things going, actually, a lot of businesses have been able to survive and some really thrive during the period. So, but there has been differences uh, without a shadow of doubt. And, you know, the overall picture right now is confidence is high and is higher than we've seen for quite some time. And we run something called the, the GC Confidence Index. And it's it's been uh, above seven. It's at the highest level now. And it's been above seven for, for seven consecutive months. That, that's brilliant. And most sectors right now, we're seeing a real boost in investment and confidence. And particularly uh, folks around investing in, in innovation. But look, there's differences. So at the minute, we're seeing green tech, um, we're seeing manufacturing do really well uh, throughout the whole thing. Anything to do with digital, digital enablement, uh, anybody involved in those supply chains has done really well. But it's a tough time still for hospitality, for tourism, for some creatives um, and some business services. There's still some really challenging times happening at the moment. So, yes, we've seen those, those, those differences between the sectors. And we've seen some differences between geographies at different times over the past few years the city center companies really suffering with, with with people not going in but you know in some 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 localities where you've got a really strong manufacturing base that was linked into um healthcare and linked into other areas doing very well so yeah we've seen real variations over over that time frame but what's been 
What's been really interesting is we've been able to track that in depth because we've been speaking to so many businesses over this. We've had over 8,000 in-depth discussions that we've captured throughout the whole period. So we've been able to keep a real-time understanding of what's changing. So big shifts. But where we stand right now, uh, a positive outlook from business community, but with some real headwinds coming at us from some of the price rises, the supply chain issues, you've got some tax increases coming. So there's some some real headwinds and some real price pressure points coming in uh, for for some some businesses and particularly around uh, some sectors uh, with wage increases, really kind of pressure points on there as well. So mixed picture, but overall, it's looking like a positive one at the moment. Obviously, in the last two years i mean people will be familiar with the you know the furlough scheme that rishi sunak introduced quite early during the pandemic and you know there's been some debate over whether the support that's been offered to businesses has been always of the right kind i mean what what's what's your view on that has the government pretty much got it right in terms of the support it's offered in the last two years or are there areas where it could have been a bit more targeted or or a bit done a bit better overall and i was going a bit shot down when i i made these kind of statements but overall i think it's done pretty well in terms of it stepped up it stepped forward it put support in place it made the cash available to businesses and yes we've seen um there's no doubt about that some of those systems have uh, enabled some fraudulent activities we've seen it's had a lot of press recently and uh treasury have had to, to write off some some fraudulent claims in that period but in the overall positioning piece it got in there quickly and yes it could have spent months designing and refining to eliminate some of those things but if it done that it wouldn't have got the support out quickly so um you know i'm sure you could have a whole podcast just on the uh on, on the writing off of some of the fraudulent activities but overall definitely get stepped up and got it in right i think the the challenge that was just making sure that businesses were kept aware of everything that was taking place during that period and it was really really tough even sitting in the growth company with a research team and we were on top of it and we were getting all the regular updates it was really really tough keeping a handle on that so trying to keep your business going and dealing with all of those issues it was tough so we did a really big campaign called here for business where we reached out to the business community that we served um with a big campaign recently won an award that campaign actually but uh, to really make companies aware of all the support make sure there was a simple place for them to go to but we didn't just leave it at that we were proactively ringing out reaching out to those companies directly um and reached out of to, to 25,000 businesses during that um and we put on the webinars we we as i say we got the intelligence together and really made sure that we guided businesses through what was a, a regularly change and still is still is a you know changing picture and i think i think just giving people that kind of confidence that we were there that we were reaching out that there was a place to go to we saw a really big uplift in inquiries coming into the growth company and into particularly in greater manchester into into the growth hub um that that really helps but we did a whole range of other things like we got all the greater, Man, greater manchester membership bodies together we brought worked really really closely with um, the the private sector who themselves were wanting to to step up and some professional service firms offering support and intelligence and just bringing all that together into one place i think that made a real difference in terms of 
been those businesses been able to, to engage with us. And some of those are existing clients, some of them are new, some of them we engage with for the first time during that period that are now we're now able to go on as they come out of the pandemic and they're looking at innovation and they're looking at moving forward we can continue to work with them so yeah look tough period tough for everybody but there was a lot of things that were put in place during that time frame and you know i was i was looking at the, the long list of stuff that, that we did and uh, you know we did a lot of work uh, helping people access ppe and that, that seems like a distant memory almost all of that stuff but yeah it, it was really inspiring just to see how it wasn't just us it was about how the city really came together to support. Uh, and indeed, we then worked nationally with the Growth Hub Network across the country to make sure the Growth Hub Network nationally could step up and really work with uh, their local businesses and spread some of that best practice around. So, yeah, we uh, we, we did an awful lot during that, that period. And, yeah, Sean, you can look back and could things have been targeted slightly better? Could we have done more? Of course. But, but overall, I think that the the government stepped up and, and put support in place and places like Greater Manchester and others stepped up again to make sure that businesses were able to find a way through that. One of the notable things, not just in business, but in other sectors as well, is that the pandemic has accelerated changes in the way things are done. Like you know, in the NHS, the, the changes that would have taken 10 or 20 years to happen happened in the space of a few months because they they had to. And I, I get the sense that that's kind of true in, in business as well, with firms having to adapt to their circumstances. But the, the, the changes that we've seen in terms of how businesses operate and which ones thrive and which ones are less successful, is that going to be a, a permanent change in terms of people going back to city centres, back to offices? Is, is that going to start happening more or, or the changes we've seen, are they going to be sort of permanent or long, long lasting? Yeah. So I think it's a really interesting question. That I think when we look at those businesses that during the pandemic completely pivoted how they were doing, um, it's really, you know, one, one of the programmes we run is the Global Scale-Up Programme. And you'd think, well, obviously, that's going to be pretty tough during the pandemic. You can't fly to places, you can't get to places. And the mantra on the build up to you know, pre-pandemic was, if you want to do business with, uh, with the global market, you've got to be there and build up the relationships. But one thing that the pandemic showed that actually you can do an awful lot virtually if you've got the right networks. And we brought together a number of partners like KPMG, DWF, Santander and others to make sure that businesses had access to uh, a network of global contacts, a network of, of, of potential areas where they could get into those markets without having to fly. And we actually had more international markets entered after the pandemic started than we did before on that program because we were able to, to get things going quickly. So that those businesses that were able to really grab the opportunity and there's one particular business, the, the Insights Group, that kind of really grabbed it and they just went for it during the pandemic, entering multiple international markets. So I think those kind of businesses that saw the art of the possible and pivoted, they'll just continue with that innovation and continue with that rapid growth and, and, uh, and really embed that change and that rapid change into their businesses. And I think that the the real opportunity now is those businesses that perhaps have been a bit slow on the uptake of digital, hadn't got there quickly enough, got have, have done that during the pandemic. And I think 
looking back, you you almost take it for granted now, but it was a radical change that took place. So being able to embed that thinking going forward into those businesses, those ones who who are really going to thrive are those ones that just keep that constant, keep the innovations that they had and keep innovating and keep changing and almost kind of those businesses who realize what they were capable of, those who can sit back and stand and look at that and go, well, let's just make that a de facto uh, approach in, into our business. They're going to be the ones that are really going to survive and and really thrive during this period. In terms of kind of what it's going to mean for for, for how people work and, and what we're seeing on those trends, I think at the minute there's a big difference between some of the larger companies and SMEs. We've seen a lot of SMEs wanting to get back together and they get their, their key teams because they're in often more um, growth stages and they want to be together during that period, whereas more of the, the larger companies have perhaps been a bit more standoffish about getting people back into to, to the office and have just been a bit more cautious on that front. And I think I can see see that trend continuing going forward. We've seen some businesses that we work with completely change their whole approach to what their office is. You know, it's no longer an office to go and work. It's a lot of office to go and collaborate. And they've, they've changed the how they structure and see that. And I think I think those changes will be permanent. I, I, I don't think we're going to be in a position whereby the concept of coming together physically to, to work completely goes because, you know, there's a reason that that was created. You know, uh, we do our best work when we're, we're physically together. What's interesting is how companies are approaching it. And those that are dictating, you have to come in for two, three, four days a week. Some of those are struggling because they're losing staff, but some are saying, well, that's okay. We've just got to accept we're losing them. Uh, but that's what we want to do. Whereas others are taking a much more flexible approach to that and uh, and seeing that as part of their retention strategy, seeing that as part of their their whole approach to how they're engaging. So I think I think those things are going to be uh, uh, we'll see a permanent change to to how we work. And uh, some of the other things that I think are going to be uh, kind of that that have changed. And there's some of these things that are just kind of emerging. I think how we see some of the challenges around low carbon, inclusivity, and thinking about what it means to run a business and how your community benefits, how your staff benefit, how you attract people. I think in that area, undoubtedly, there's been changes that will be long lasting beyond the pandemic. I think it's been a period where everyone's kind of reflected on what they want to be doing personally, and that's people in the workforce and business leaders. And you've seen quite a few business leaders come out of this starting to think, well, actually, what impact am I having on planet? What impact am I having on my staff and people and and some of my supply chains and, and, and coming you know, across in, in quite a different way? You've seen the rise of B Corps. Um, you've seen the rise of uh, people looking at different kind of endpoints of, of their entrepreneurial journey with the business where they're saying, okay, I was maybe thinking about an IPO, but I might actually, or selling out, or I might actually think about employee ownership. So you've seen quite a big rise in things like employee ownership. You've seen a big rise of people being interested in really looking at their their carbon impact over the period. So I think I think there's going to be some long-lasting changes. Many of those things, I think, very positive actually could, could come from this. Um, 
Uh, but I think we've still got a long way to go to see the, the true impact of what city centres are going to look like, what towns are going to look like. Um, and and I think it's going to be those that constantly keep up to date with kind of what businesses are saying, what intelligence they're getting, and, and grabbing those opportunities to say, you know, we are uh, thinking about the, 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 the town centres as opposed to the city centres and making sure they're ripe for co-working and people coming together to work in perhaps a different space than they previously would have done. I mean, in terms of the other big sort of structural issues facing businesses, I guess there's things like net zero, obviously the, the drive to reduce our carbon emissions and the, the general move towards digital. Are these challenges or are they opportunities for northern businesses, businesses in Greater Manchester or, or, or a bit of both? So uh, I'm going to uh, let's tackle each of those um, separately. I think to take the, the net zero, um, I think is a huge opportunity, but it's not always an easy opportunity to, to, to grab hold of. You know, you've got, as soon as you dive into to net zero, you've got some challenges around um, the understanding the technologies that are out there, finding people who can support you with them, Getting your head around some of the terminology in that space can be, be, be quite challenging. However, those people who reach out and, and do get the right advice and the right uh, and engage with that process, and you know, the growth company does a lot of work in this space, those people who do engage with it and do start their, we've got a program journey to, to net zero, that start to look at how they can embed um, a journey towards net zero in the business and recognize how they can measure it, what the terminology means, where their key easy wins are, how they can step. That, then that's a great opportunity for those businesses uh, to, to take cost out of their system, to have a really clear strategy around net zero, which is great and, and really important often when you're pitching for contracts, when you're in a supply chain, but increasingly importantly, when he's trying to recruit staff, because it's become a, a, a really big thing that certainly from uh, certain generations are coming forward as part of their uh, you know, um, shift of who they're going to work for and selection process, who they're going to work for. Asking that question, what is your net zero strategy is becoming a key theme. And one of the big shifts that perhaps hasn't been talked about as much is we, we've moved from kind of the company in the center um, with folks trying, trying to get into that to actually the individuals in the center with companies trying to attract that talent. And I think that's been a really big shift that, that's taken place. And I think put the onus back on companies to go, how can I as a business attract individuals? Net zero, if you've got a strategy for that, that's certainly going to be one that's going, going to help you with that. As for people in the net zero sector, I mean, the, the, the growth rates are incredible there. And I think the opportunities are, are, are incredible. And again, we've got uh, uh, you know, dedicated sector teams to support people in that space. And so undoubtedly, it's, it's a great opportunity, but there will be transition issues. And you're seeing at the minute with the introduction, some of the clean air zones and other spaces where and other activities where within that it's a transition and transition means change and change is tough for 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 a lot of folk it's not an easy thing so yes there's a great opportunity there yes you can make savings 
yes, you can you can create your business on on the back of the uh, shift to net zero. But it is a transition. I think one of the things we've got to be really, really careful about is to bring everybody along on that journey. And it would be easy for it to be seen as a problem when actually this is a great opportunity. If we get the net zero right, it plays a big part in our inward investment pitches. It plays a really big part in how we're attracting new capital uh, into the north. So I think it's definitely an opportunity on net zero but we've got to recognize there's a challenge there in that transition. And I think there's an education piece. I think there's a recognition we've got to bring people along on the journey and, and recognize that some sectors, some, uh, it's going to be harder for them. And I think we need to have funds in place to support people through through that process. On digital, I think, uh, you know, definitely, again, a, a great opportunity but you've got to do your homework before you start going down that journey. You've got to make sure that what you're digitizing is good in the first place. So so often you see people trying to digitize something where your systems and processes might not be that great in the first place. So you start with your systems and processes. You start and looking at the core fundamentals of what you're doing in the business and see digital as an enabler uh, who can help you, that can help you kind of improve that and improve bring efficiencies and open new up new opportunities. But I think too often people see, oh, that's a product I want. I'm going to buy it, as opposed to thinking, right, what is it I want to achieve? What systems could help me? What are going to be the best ones and how do we bring them in? And a great example of that is what we do on the Made Smarter across the northwest of England. Uh, we ran the, the national pilot on that at the growth company that was helping manufacturing companies adopt digital technology and the big lessons to learn from that are you've got to go back to basics to make sure you're digitizing a good approach and a good system and a good um, uh, structure that you've got to how your uh, manufacturing operations work but also that you're bringing your workforce along on the process you're getting the, the leadership skills in the right place and understanding what digital can do and getting people comfortable with that. And then you get to the stage of thinking about what technology, then you can get to the stage of thinking about who you might buy in to do this activity for you, but you've got to do your homework first. So again, it's a great opportunity and you know it's a great way to improve your productivity. It's a great way to open up new opportunities, but do your homework, do your preparation, get the right advice and guidance, and don't just buy that first shiny product that you see. Richard Jeffrey, thank you so much for speaking to us today. It's great. Thank you very much for the opportunity and great to talk to you. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and Dan O'Donoghue, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. <laughs>